0: The first lesson, which will also be the basis for the sermon today, is from the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. After some time, the stream dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, get up, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. I have commanded a woman there, a widow, to provide for you. So he got up and went to Zarephath. He came to the city gate, and there he saw a widow gathering sticks. He called to her and said, "Please give me a little water in a jar, so that I can have something to drink." When he went to get it, he called. When she went to get it, he called to her, "Please bring me a piece of bread." She said, "As surely as the Lord your God lives, I have no food except a handful of flour in a jar." And a little olive oil in a pitcher. See, I am gathering a couple of sticks so that I can go and prepare it for myself and my son, so that we can eat it and then die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do just as you said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from the flour and bring it out to me. Then go and make another for you and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not run out and the pitcher of oil will not become empty until the day the Lord sends rain to water the surface of the ground. So she went and did exactly as Elijah said. He and she, as well as her household, were able to eat for many days. The jar of flour did not run out and the pitcher of oil did not become empty, just as the Lord had said through Elijah. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. When you hear the story of Elijah and the widow, it is a little bit like walking into a movie halfway through. Is it possible to enjoy a movie, get something out of it, if you walk in halfway through? Usually, especially if it's one of those movies where all the good stuff happens in the second half, like Rocky or Titanic or something like that. And is it possible, if you watch the second half of a movie very carefully, is it possible to basically figure out what happened in the first half, sort of piece it together from the second half, usually? But in order to really appreciate, understand what the film is saying to you, you kind of do have to take the time to rewind and see what happens in the first half. So would you, remi- would you mind... Rewinding with me in the story of Elijah and the widow. Now, don't panic, okay? We're not going to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden or anything like that. We're not even going to go back all the way to the beginning of Israel or even to the beginning of Elijah's life. We're just going to rewind a little bit in the story. The story of Elijah and the widow falls in 1 Kings chapter 17. Let's just rewind one chapter to 1 Kings 16 you go back just that little ways, you find a man becoming the king of Israel whose name is Ahab. And during the reign of King Ahab, the definition was wickedness. Ahab set up idols all over his kingdom, the north of Israel, of pagan gods for the people to worship. Uh, the Lord told Ahab not to go out and make foreign alliances with other nations the Lord told him I am the one who protects you you don't go out and make treaties with other countries he went and did it anyway things got so bad in Israel during Ahab's reign that there was actually human sacrifice in Israel sacrifice of children it was so bad under the reign of King Ahab that the writer of first kings summarizes Ahab's reign like this Ahab, son of Omri, committed more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all those who had gone before him. Now, please understand, that is a really high level of evil to live up to. You have to like go to evil graduate school to reach that level of evil because all the kings of Israel, this northern kingdom, were rotten. None of them ever served the Lord. But Ahab was so evil, he managed to outdo them all. So, As a warning to this evil king Ahab, the Lord sent his prophet Elijah with a threatening message. As surely as the Lord lives, the God of Israel before whom I stand, there will be no dew or rain during the coming years except at my word. Of course, delivering a warning like that To a psychopath like Ahab is a very dangerous thing to do. It is so dangerous that right after Elijah delivered that message to wicked king Ahab, the Lord instructed his prophet Elijah to escape. To run away from Israel, to go all the way to the other side of the Jordan River and to hide out at a ravine. But of course now, no rain is falling. So pretty soon that ravine dries up. And that's where our little rewind ends. That's where the story of Elijah and the widow that you heard before picks up. Now without that little rewind, it would be kind of hard to understand why the Lord begins that story by telling Elijah, his prophet to Israel, his prophet to the Israelites, get up, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. Uh, Today, Zarephath is in the nation of Lebanon. In Elijah's time, it was in the nation of Sidon. It's not in Israel now. It wasn't in Israel then. So what the Lord is doing here is he is taking his prophet to Israel. The prophet intended to the Israelites, and the Lord is intentionally sweeping him out of Israel, removing him from his chosen people and moving him to a place where Gentiles live. And thanks to that little rewind, maybe we can understand why the Lord is doing that. Well, now that we've done a little rewinding, would you mind fast-forwarding with me? Let's go forward from the time of Elijah, about eight centuries, where we will find another prophet inside the borders of Israel. He is in the region of Galilee, which, by the way, lay within that northern kingdom of Israel that Ahab once ruled. This prophet is speaking to people in his own hometown in the region of Galilee, and this prophet has something in common with Elijah. After he finishes speaking to people, he also has to escape. He has to run away. Because when he finishes speaking to these people, they try to murder him, but he passed through the middle of them and went on his way. See, what this prophet said upset the people in Israel, in his hometown, so much that they wanted him dead. What this prophet told them was that he was not just a prophet, he was the prophet, prophet with a capital P, the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh. And they rejected that roundly, so much that they even tried to murder him and he had to escape and run away. But before he did, he said, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut for three years and six months with a while a great famine came over the land, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow of Zarephath in Sidon. See, Jesus knows this whole story too. Because the people of Israel, led by their wicked king Ahab, rejected the word of the Lord that Elijah was speaking, the Lord took Elijah and moved him outside of Israel to a Gentile land. And there, in the Gentile town of Zarephath and S- Zarephath and Sidon the prophet Elijah got to see the word of God work he got to see the word of God working inside the heart of a starving widow who is also the mother of a starving son the very first words out of this widow's mouth when Elijah speaks to her are as surely as the Lord your God lives that is very specific to the true God the Lord of Israel so The word of the Lord had already crossed the northern border of Israel into this town in Zarephath, and it had worked faith in the heart of this poor widow. And you know that not only by the words she says there, but you also know it by what she does. Because when this prophet from the land of Israel promises her that a miracle is going to happen, she actually moves on it. And that is a really remarkable thing because this request that Elijah makes from this starving widow at first glance seems downright cruel. He tells a widow who is starving herself, who has a starving son, to go and take from her puny supply of flour and oil and make bread for him first. Can you imagine the nerve of that? Elijah doesn't even say, look, Go and make everything you got, and we'll go thirds. I'll take a third, your son, you take a third, and we'll all be fine for a few days. Oh, he says, go and make for me first. Make a small loaf of bread for me from the flour and bring it out to me. Now, I believe it is safe to say that if this widow did not have faith in God, she'd have used one of those sticks she had been gathering and whatever little energy she had left to thwack Elijah upside the head. But she didn't do that. She did have faith. She actually believed that this flour and oil was going to last until the rain started falling again and the crops started growing. So she went and did exactly what Elijah said. He and she as well as her household were able to eat for many days. The jar of flour did not run out and the pitcher of oil did not become empty just as the Lord had said through Elijah. So you see there's actually two miracles that happen in this story. There is the miracle of flour and oil not running out, but there is also this miracle. So she went and did exactly what Elijah said. I would actually argue that the second miracle is way more impressive than the first miracle. You know, flour and oil not running out when it should, that violates the laws of thermodynamics. That's awfully impressive. But believing that is actually going to happen, that's a miracle on a whole other level. So, when the word of the Lord, spoken through his prophet Elijah, when that was rejected in the Lord's own chosen nation of Israel, the Lord did not give up with his powerful word. He moved along to a land of Gentiles, and there it worked miraculous faith and miraculous good works in the heart of this Gentile widow. Now, let's fast forward again back to the ministry of Jesus Christ, where you find that it was not just in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth that his saving gospel was rejected. It was all up and down Israel, wherever Jesus went. And so then, too, the Lord took the saving message of his kingdom and he flew with it beyond the borders of Israel to the hearts of Gentiles. And you see this happening already during the ministry of Jesus himself. Do you know in all four of the Gospels combined, there are only three times that Jesus praises the faith in the heart of a person? And do you know what all three of these people whose faith is commended by the Son of God, do you know what they all have in common? They're all Gentiles. Because the gospel was mostly rejected inside of Israel at the time of Christ, God was already taking it beyond Israel's borders to the hearts of Gentiles where he was working miraculous faith and he was working amazing good works in God's service. Now it should be noted that sometimes this Bible truth gets labeled as racist or anti-Semitic. That's not fair for a couple of reasons. First of all, facts are facts and facts are really incapable of racism or anti-Semitism and the simple fact is that throughout most of Israel's history all the way up to and through the time of the Messiah most of the people, most of the time did reject God's saving word. Secondly, it's unfair because some Israelites did believe. You know, in this story, Elijah has to go beyond the borders to find faith. But later in Elijah's life, when he comes back to Israel, the Lord comforts Elijah. Elijah is feeling dejected like his whole life and work has been a waste of time. And the Lord says, no, there's still thousands in Israel who are faithful to me and worship me. In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul is, is lamenting that most of his fellow Israelites have rejected the gospel of Christ. But he also reminded us, Some have believed, including, of course, St. Paul himself. Jesus Christ chose 12 believing Israelites to launch his New Testament church, and still today, there are many believing Jewish Christians in the world. So, this is not about hating Jewish people, and it's not about claiming that all Israelites of all time have rejected God's word. It is simply to observe this Bible truth and let it settle into our hearts. That when God's word is resisted and rejected in one place, he does not give up. He keeps going with it. He keeps working with his word. He moves to new places, creates miraculous faith and good works in his service. And you see, that is actually something for everyone here this morning to be very thankful for. Because if the Lord did allow His Word to just break down and stall when it was rejected, it never would have bounced beyond Israel's borders and reached all the way to you and me this morning. And yet, because God does persist with His Word, because He does not give up on it, here we are, 2,000 years later and thousands of miles away from Israel, and the Lord has worked miracles here with His Word. I don't know if you often think of yourself on these terms, but you are very literally miraculous because this message, this word of God that he has persisted with all the way to your heart is offensive. It's devastating to your pride because it tells you and me that we are sinful people who have nothing coming from God but eternal condemnation. And yet this message that God never gives up on, it also wins us over by telling us that far from giving us what we deserve, God gave us his son. And so Jesus came and he walked up and down Israel proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And it was mostly rejected, including in his own hometown. But when they tried to kill him, you remember what happened? He passed through the middle of them and went on his way. And why was that? It's for you and me. Because Jesus still had three years to go on his mission. He still had three more years of perfect preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. Three more years of keeping all of God's commandments perfectly for us. To save us from our sins. And then at the end of that mission, Jesus did die, but not being thrown down a cliff. Being lifted up on a cross according to God's plan and God's purpose. We bleed and die to wash all of our sins away. In Jesus' perfect life, you have the holiness you need. In Jesus' death on the cross, all of your sins are gone forever. And in his Easter resurrection, you have the promise of your own resurrection and eternal life. You see, faith in that message requires a miracle. And you have that faith in your heart today because God does not give up on his word. When it's rejected in one place, he keeps going with it and he has gotten all the way to you and your heart and he has worked miraculous faith in that gospel message and the faith to perform good works in God's service. That's the good news. There is also, of course, a little bit of a warning in all of this for you and me and that is when God's word is resisted and rejected, he doesn't suffer that treatment of his word forever you know it's interesting in his word God describes himself as eternally loving eternally compassionate and gracious he never once describes himself as eternally patient he does say that he is abundantly patient he is very patient he is long-suffering but he never once says my patience lasts forever You see, when God's word is resisted and rejected in one place, he does finally run out of patience and he moves it on down the road and works with it there. You see it in the Old Testament ministry of Elijah. You see it in the ministry of Jesus Christ. You see it later in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. When the apostles went out to different cities and the gospel was met with unbelief, they didn't stay there forever, they moved on to another city. You see it throughout the history of the New Testament church. You know, places in this world that were once dominated by Christianity, full of Christian churches, they're full of mosques now. Western Europe, where the gospel was flourishing up until 300 years ago, the churches have literally been converted into museums because nobody wants to worship there anymore. Well, what happened? Resistance to the Word of God Resistance that turned into rejection and finally God said, have it your way. I'll go and I'll keep working with my words somewhere else. And now, a lot of American Christians are concerned that the same thing is happening right now in this country. And they're right. It is. You know, rather than worrying about the spiritual direction of an entire country... It might be wiser for us to look at our own lives individually and look at our own personal spiritual direction. You see, a lot of times when people lament real loudly about the spiritual decay of a whole country or a giant group of people, that's a distraction, see? It's a deflection, so I don't have to do the hard work of looking at my own heart and my own life. So it would be a good idea for us as individuals to look for any of this dangerous kind of resistance to the Word of God in our own lives. So here's a story. It's not about me, so don't think that, okay? It's about a friend of mine. So this friend of mine, a few weeks ago, he got home from work, he was very tired. And that particular day, this friend of mine had not really, he'd been around the Bible all day, he'd been working with the Bible all day, but he'd never really taken the time to meditate on it and apply it to his own heart, right? So then... On the corner of his coffee table, he saw this brand new copy of a lovely Lutheran devotional called Day by Day We Magnify Thee, which a nice couple in his congregation, not Trinity, don't think that, but a nice couple in his congregation had given him this beautiful new devotional for Christmas, and there it was sitting just waiting to be read. Thing is, there was a Capitals-Jets game on, and he was really tired, and he said to himself, all right, just a little hockey. One period of hockey, we'll get to the devotion during the first intermission, right? And then the game got really good and Ovechkin scored and then the game went to overtime and needless to say the devotion was never read. Now, just out of curiosity, when I was writing this sermon I wondered, what would I have read that night in that devotional? What would I I or my friend have read that night in the devotional If I had not resisted the word of God in favor of hockey, what would I have read? So I went back and I looked it up. And the the translation is a little old-fashioned, so you're going to have to forgive that. But this is what I would have read that night. It's a devotion based on Titus 3.4, which says, After that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And then the devotion says, Thus God has shown himself in his gospel, altogether loving and kind toward us, willing to receive every man, despising none, forgiving all our wickedness, never driving any away with sincerity. His gospel proclaims pure grace, with which he surrounds us in the most benevolent way, so that no man is treated according to his merit or deserts. This is the time of grace, where every man may draw nigh to the throne of God with complete trust and confidence. In his gospel, God has revealed to us his kindness, not only that he will help men and suffer them to be near him, but yet more, holds on to them, seeks to be with them, and offers them unceasingly his grace and friendship. These are two sweet and comfortable words and promises of God, namely, that he offers his grace to us and does not leave us, and that he receives in a most loving way all who desire to draw near to him. What more could he do? Behold then why his gospel is called a comfortable and lovely message of God in Christ. What sweeter word could be spoken to a wretched, sinful conscience? Uh, that's from Luther's Sermons of the Year, 1522. A well, Hockey's great. That might have been a better thing to read that night. You know, this is really our greatest reason to listen to the Word of God and take it to heart because in the words of Luther, no sweeter word could be spoken to us. That God loves us and saves us in His Son. When that widow in Zarephath listened to the word of the Lord and believed, she received from the Lord the gift of life. Life for herself, for her son, for that visiting prophet from Israel. But she got more than physical life. She also got eternal life through her faith in the Lord. When we listen to what the Lord says to us in his word and believe it, he is giving us the gift of life. Life that lasts forever. There's really no point in trying to improve on what Luther wrote. Did you notice he wrote that sermon 500 years ago exactly? Nobody's touched it since. His gospel proclaims pure grace with which he surrounds us in the most benevolent way. So yeah, it's true enough. There is a warning for us on this Sunday. Don't resist the word of God. It's a bad idea. It grows into rejection. God will take it away from you and move it on to some other place. But the thing is, Warnings and threats from God, those never move us to do what God desires, at least not with the heart that he desires. It is only the promise of life in his gospel that does it, and his word is where we find it. This is our reason to listen to God's word eagerly and to believe it happily. In that word, he gives us life in his son, life that never ends. Amen.